On a Tuesday morning 20 years ago, the world we knew changed forever. Our conception of ourselves as a nation transformed forever. And tens of thousands of lives would never be the same again. More than 3,000 lives were lost that day. Millions grieved for them and watched one of the most tragic days in American history unfold in real time. Today, as part of NBC 15 News's continuing look back at that unimaginable day, we wanted to take the time to introduce you to the individuals who found a way to help, including a Madison firefighter who sprung into action after the disaster, aiding search and rescue efforts on Ground Zero, and a woman who discovered her life's mission in the wake of this tragedy. We'll also hear from the man who led Wisconsin through that day. He'll explain his role in the aftermath and how he feels it changed our state. This is the inaugural episode of Making Wisconsin, a history of the Badger State. I'm Gabriella Rusk. And I'm Charlie Shortino. Together, we'll take you through cultural and historical moments that have shaped our state and who we are. And we start with the day that touched us all, 9-11. NBC 15's John Stofflett sat down for an emotional interview with former firefighter Rob Verhelst. On 9-11, Verhelst, nicknamed Fireman Rob, was a 23-year-old Madison firefighter. That morning, he heard and saw the attacks unfold first on radio and then on television. Verhelst drove to New York the very next day to help dig through the rubble at Ground Zero, hoping to find any signs of survivors. It was eight days he spent aiding search and rescue efforts. In this interview, Verhelst digs deep, sharing the realities of living with PTSD from what he witnessed those dark days. Well, Rob, let's start uh, at the beginning here. Before we get into the 9-11 20 years ago, how would you describe the type of person you are? Yeah, I mean, to describe myself, it, it's very complicated because there's so many different layers of mm -hmm. who I am. You know, I'm a father first, um, a husband, um, but also at the same time, you know, I like to say a, a PTSD survivor. Um, I haven't thrived through it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. been constant uh, throughout my whole existence from the fire service to 9-11 to um, being in the military. Um, you know, I, I like to think of myself as somebody who wants to be positive mm -hmm. and wants to continue to move forward and make an impact. Um, but that's not every single day of my life. And mm -hmm. that's just the, the reality of everything. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're a, a kind of a born helper, though. I, I, could t I mean, most people are who go into fire service or military or whatever. Yeah, right? I've, been, I've been around. I've been uh, from doing lifeguarding to firefighting to being in the Air Force as a medic everything in my life is kind of focused around helping others and you know from motivational speaking as well mm -hmm. it's going out there and trying to impact somebody's life just maybe just a little bit of their life mm -hmm. to actually have them see the potential see that there's something outside of that darkness that they may be living in so on 9 11 2001 uh, where were you when you saw the news a question everyone's talking about uh, every every 9-11 since. Yeah. Know. So the morning of September 11th, I was working shift and we actually had a house fire that morning 
And I was less than a year on the job. And when we got back to the station, I was up in the showers and we were listening to the radio and uh, heard that the first trade tower had been hit. And, you know, didn't think anything of it. I, I was young, I was 23 years old. And went downstairs and then on the TV saw that the second trade tower had been hit and that this was more than just some biplane hitting a, um, the towers. And at that point, I, I, you know, contacted the rescue team that I'd been a part of. And they said, if you can get out here, get out here. There was no flights going. And so I drove, I had a little purple Saturn at the time and drove from Madison out to New York City and got there on the 12th. Why did you feel compelled to go? You know, I felt compelled to go just because of the fact that I knew they needed people. I knew they needed um, individuals to be able to go in there and be able to handle what was going to be put in front of you. At 23, I was ignorant to what was going to be put in front of me. And I just felt compelled that my whole life had been focused around helping others. And this was something that I could do. And when I got there, I didn't, didn't expect what I was going to see. And, and what did you see? Share what you're comfortable sharing. I don't want to make it uncomfortable <laughs> for you. but um, You know, for, uh, the hard thing was is that it looked like a movie scene. You know, going in there, nothing really felt real or was real until you got into like the bucket brigades and then you got into the holes and, and then you got so tired searching. And it was, it was really tactical and strategic searching and um, you got so tired that you just didn't, didn't know what was in front of you. Um, and I think that was, the, that was the hardest part, but being there, um, I think, you know, the positives, we always have to look for positives and some of these negatives. And the most amazing thing that I haven't seen since that I, I, I would love to see again is um, everybody came together um, for such an amazing reason to move forward. And we saw everybody from iron workers who weren't tunnel rats, they weren't mm -hmm. built to do rescue or recovery. We're going into the holes, cutting rebar so we could go farther to uh, American Red Cross workers who are making sandwiches around the clock to, for us. And a lot of people who have never seen anything like this before. Mm -hmm. And everybody just worked constantly. It was like 22 hours a day. You maybe slept a few times on the pile or there's recliners on the side streets, but it was just, it was going the whole time. What was the most difficult part of being there and seeing what had happened? Understanding why. I think the struggle is still there. It's like, what, why does something like this happen? Why do can't rationalize it in your head and you try to but but it just makes you feel even worse makes you feel that you know you can't control things in your own life mm -hmm. and that's how you spin out of control is that you try to understand things that really are never meant to be able to understand mm -hmm. and not only I mean there were a lot of civilians but so many firefighters New York firefighters and more how did that factor in? I mean, knowing that there's the brotherhood and the and, and sisterhood in the, in the in the fire service. How did that factor into your search? Uh, it was hard because I, one of the days I remember there was um, 
a fire crew that came up to us as we were searching and and the guy just kept saying uh he's right here they're right here i know they're right here and that was where the the um, engine company was mm -hmm. and he wanted us to search and of course we went down and searched but the hard part about all of this was the reality of what we were looking at and the reality was is that this was not going to be a, a rescue operation yeah. and trying to um, rationalize that in your head for the other individuals is uh, it's not easy mm -hmm. and um, the family that you have in the fire service like I've learned from day one to now we all at the beginning of our shift say you know we're here to get everybody home at the end of the day mm -hmm. at the end of your shift and um, that's hard when you can't do anything to help those individuals to get home mm -hmm. do you is there any part of you that while you were there did it ever feel like why am i doing this to myself i mean this is overwhelming that would be a normal human reaction or or did you were you just even more determined or both i think it was while i was there i was just really um just focused on what i was supposed mm -hmm. to do i mean i was so focused one of the days i went into the porta potty thinking that i had went to the bathroom and as i'm walking back i actually went to the bathroom in my jumpsuit yeah you get so hyper focused that you don't realize the little things that you're having to do or don't do mm -hmm. and um i think the hardest day was was the day that i left and that that's when everything let down you knew you were done and um that's when everything started to kind of come to grips you mentioned you've gone back as we talked the other day so you've been back it's it's not easy for you no to go back. it's not easy i've been i've been back only twice um the first time i i, I mean both times have been physical um reactions thrown up just not able to to function. Um, last time I went back with my wife, I we went to the museum, but it didn't last long. It's it's hard you, you, when you see. It's, <laughs> it's hard when you see something that you live through, and um, people going through and just looking at it, kind of like it's a show or something. I can only imagine Pearl Harbor and, and what those guys felt. Mm. And it kind of feels the same. I know you have to remember it and commemorate it, um, but it was just a, it's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. This is a question only if you're comfortable answering, but what, the most vivid memory you have um, are, are, is there from being there after, things that kind of stick with you, I guess. There's a lot of them, and I mean, I can't, you know, I, I, I get to live with those, but, um, yeah. and I, it's sight, it's, you know, smells are probably one of the biggest yeah. thing. Um, concrete, uh, concrete dust it sets me off. Um, sure. I think the, the biggest thing when we went back was it the, the buildings had changed, and that was, that was good, but the firehouse that was there, it was still, it was the same exact place that we had seen. 
Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, you try to, <laughs> everybody always says, you know, remember, but um, never forget. And yeah, a lot of us that were there never forget, um, but we also never forget what, what we were there for. It, it's traumatic having to deal with it every single day. You don't get a day off. Um, so do you feel like your life has been improved as a result ultimately or? I think it took a long time. It mm -hmm. took a long time for it to actually, there was 10 years I was lost in my life. I was lost. Um, problems with, with drinking and just not really grasping my life and who I was. And, you know, I finally, in 2011, I started to do races in firefighter gear and mm -hmm. to commemorate those lost and those still living with the trauma. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess it, you know, to be honest, it did help me find who I was and helped me to continue to survive every single day because I know I have a purpose. Mm -hmm. What would your advice be to, you're doing a number of uh, nonprofits and getting involved and in trying to find the silver lining and the positive in all this. So for people who've lived through, and very few have lived through the, the type of trauma you've seen, but uh, who are experiencing that in their lives, what would your advice be to them? I think the biggest advice I could give to them is um, be okay with not being okay is one thing. Um, I think for so long it was a, it was a stigma of, uh, you know, if you have this or you're feeling this way that there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to be not okay. And the second part is in all these things it takes time. It takes time and you have to think about it from a perspective of what is What's the positives of what came out? Maybe there's only one compared to the 10 negatives, but that's something that you have to tie on to, like all those people working together. That's the one positive that I hang on to is like this tragedy brought something of all these people mm -hmm. bonding together. It didn't matter what gender, what creed, what race, anything like that. We were all going for the common purpose and you have to find a positive to keep moving. When you were there, were you getting, I would imagine there was a lot of gratitude among the grief of, from fellow firefighters, you know, that, that you were there, you had come across the country to help people like you. Yeah, I think it was unspoken. And, and I think that's the best way you can, can do it. It was, we went out there not for somebody to say thank you, but to just be there mm -hmm. to do what we can. I, um, I think the same thing goes for like our troops and everything like that is like they do it not for the accolades obviously because <laughs> you never get them. Mm -hmm. They do them because it's the thing that's right for them at that moment. I think it's becoming a more a rarer and rarer commodity in people that they're not going to things to get a selfie or yeah. uh here I am live at, you know, this and that. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great quality in people. And I think you do see that in, yeah. in firefighters, and uh, police officers, people that are in it to help. Um, so you also went on to do some other nonprofit work and all that. And how, how do you feel you're doing now as a result of all that versus maybe a couple of years after you left the 9-11 site? 
I think I'm, I'm far beyond where I was. I think I, I'm starting to understand myself a lot better. Uh, being able to talk uh, to others about these kind of situations and, and not, not break down and just completely not be able to talk at all. Mm -hmm. I think the ability to, to take those steps forward for me was critical and I need to continue to do that. I can't just sit uh, sit down. I don't I don't do well in silence. I don't do well in idle time. Mm -hmm. And making sure that I can continue to do good things for other people. It's about making moments in your life, not just taking time. And for me, I think that was a huge moment in my life at 23 years old that completely changed the trajectory and I'm sure it changed many other lives trajectories and um, looking back you know I wouldn't change a thing um, but yeah definitely it's it's been a struggle mm -hmm. and uh, you mentioned the PTSD uh, that specifically uh, in addition to what happened on 9-11 and just fire service or, or, or yeah, is it's that a mainly the, you know yeah. the hard thing with PTSD and you know I've major depression and anxiety and um, mm -hmm. that it just accumulates over time yeah I mean it's not you know a lot of people feel that it's one instance that it happens and mm -hmm. it's a multitude and especially if you're in the career of firefighter police officer military whatever it is you're exposed to it and yeah. whether you know or not, um, it's going to get you. Yeah. And just being able to, a lot of times it's not even being able to talk to other people about it. Yeah. But it's being able to talk in your own head about it. Sure. And that's, <laughs> that's not a good conversation a lot of times, but it's one that you have to be able to figure out. Yeah. Since 9-11, Verhelst has gone on to become an inspiring voice. In 2013, Fireman Rob Foundation was created, helping deliver teddy bears to children in hospitals around the world. In 2015, Verhelst became the Guinness World Record holder for most Ironman triathlons in one year, doing each run portion in his 50 pounds of firefighter gear. Verhelst is currently biking in the Quell Foundation 9-11 Ride of Hope, working to bring awareness to mental health issues first responders face. He recalls a fragile moment during his search through the rubble that reminds him to keep moving forward. Yeah, so everything I've done since, well, since 2011 has been really triggered by September 11th, my mm -hmm. going to September 11th. And this is actually one of the last day I was there, I was on the pile and as we're walking off, um, I had, I had uh, saw down in one of the holes and saw there was a baby blanket down in one of the holes. And um, I asked the chief that was there if I could go down and see. And so they put a ladder belt on me and I, I crawled down. I was about six, eight feet down. And um, I got to it and I saw that closer it was a baby's blanket and um, thank God there was nothing under it but it was just I took it with me as a reminder and my I had a blanket made um, for my son of it um, to help him to protect him and it's just it was a reminder of that um, you know life is fragile and it's about moments and you need to keep living forward instead of um, worrying about all the little things that you can't control. Yeah. 
That's powerful. Wow. Yeah, as a father, I can understand. <laughs> Thanks. Yep, we can only do the best we can, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now you got me. <laughs> I can, uh, yeah, I can remember being on uh, covering stories with kids and stuff like that. <laughs> Little kids with the pacifiers, you know, oh. get a stress. Oh, man, it's rough. Yeah, it's not a, yeah, I, I've carried this my whole time that I was doing my journey, and I had little pieces that I give to people throughout my journey and yeah. that needed help, and just to have them reminded, and, um, yeah. Just a quick note before we move on. Well, we are excited to delve deeper into these stories with you on this special edition of the podcast. There are so many other perspectives. Our whole news team have been working to bring you some of them all week on NBC 15 News. And we've also taken a look at what this day means for us as a nation. We've compiled all of these stories onto a special section on NBC15.com. You can find these stories and the rest of our coverage. And you can also find a link to the page in the show notes. Now we continue with an interview by NBC15's Tim Elliott. He spoke with Dr. Lisa Arkin, the Director of Dermatology at UW Health, and an Associate Professor at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine. In 2001, Dr. Arkin had a very different profession. That September, she lived in New York, a 25-year-old climbing the ladder in show business and entertainment. In her free time, she volunteered at St. Vincent's Hospital in the West Village, which just so happened to be the closest Level 1 trauma center to Ground Zero. For weeks afterwards, night after night, she fielded calls from worried families, hoping to connect with their loved ones. Those long, emotion-filled hours sparked a new passion in her. It was in that passion, combined with her feelings of helplessness from that day, she found a higher calling for her life. Dive right in. Tell me, tell me where you were and what was happening when, when you were, uh, were experiencing 9-11. So I um, was not a doctor, had no intention to go to medical school, had not even thought about um, becoming a physician, I was working in entertainment in creative development. And for a long time, I'd actually been volunteering after work with children with cystic fibrosis, which um, now is a medically manageable disease, but in the early 2000s was a, a fatal pediatric disease, kind of bringing some of the actors I had worked on projects with to make them feel better, doing things like playing cards, watching movies. So I had jury duty on September 11th. It was my first time as a college graduate having jury duty. It was the first day I reported to the courthouse. And at nine o'clock, I was on the subway, which stopped abruptly 
And we were actually underground for a couple of hours because of the devastation, just, you know, trying to figure out what was happening. You know, you, you emerged from the subway there a couple of hours later and you, and you saw things that, you know, just kind of stopped your heart. What, what were the things that you were seeing when you kind of came out from the subway? I mean, I think we've all seen the images that are now imprinted of people jumping out of buildings and smoke and dust, more dust than I'd ever seen before, sirens and screaming. It was, it was, it was like the world was ending. I mean, it was, it was a completely, utterly earth shattering day. Um, and, it, and the smell went on for weeks and weeks. So the story I'm telling is, is not different from really any other New Yorker. It's just that I happened to have been volunteering at the closest level one trauma center to the disaster. And so in the week after I called Showtime, which is where I was employed in creative development. And I said, I just, I need a little time off. I need to my services are needed elsewhere. And so I spent a week um, volunteering at night, doing mostly matching of people who called in to locate their loved ones or relatives. And it was a, it was a very difficult week, as you know, um, there were very few survivors. And so a lot of last phone calls, last moments, um, voices that I couldn't get out of my head. And in the aftermath of that, in the months that followed, because of that utter sense of total powerlessness, the sense that if only I had been a physician, I might've had something more to give. I decided to change careers altogether. And, um, you know, I called my parents and I said, I have good news, I have bad news. And they said, you know, tell us the good news. And I said, well, the good news is I just got promoted. Um, I could probably afford to pay my rent now. <laughs> the bad news is I, I really feel like I've missed a moment and I think I'm gonna go back to medical school. But of course I had taken not really a single science in college. And so my mom said to me, are you going to be a doctor for rocks? Because the only science I had taken was geology. <laughs> And I think everyone thought this would just be like a complete disaster. You know, I mean, I had like, there was literally no expectation that this was going to go well for me, but it did. Did you always feel like you, you, you wanted to give more and be that higher calling to a physician and you just never took that step? I, I really was afraid of doctors. I think I had not had good experiences as a child. And so by bringing kids to, you know, television premieres and getting their hair done and getting them fancy designer prom dresses. I, I felt like I was able to make a difference after work and I loved broadcasting. I mean, I, I love this creative pursuit of storytelling of getting to impact, you know, not just the people you could directly lay hands on, but millions of people at once. I think it's partly what's really drawn me to the idea of doing research because as a physician, you really only help the folks you lay hands on directly. But when you move the front, you help millions of people with the same problem all at once. So mm -hmm. that for me has been sort of the carry through. But you know, in the in the weeks and the months that followed 9-11, 
in New York City, there was a remarkable spirit of unity around this disaster. It was, it pervaded every aspect of life. People were lifted up by one another. There was a sense of caring and compassion and kindness, really unlike anything I'd ever seen before. You know, when you look back, you mentioned it's been 20 years. Does it, does it feel like it's been 20 years? I mean, it still feels very real to me. The smell, I can still smell it. The memories are, they're imprinted in my mind forever. So although it, it still feels very near, I'm obviously, a, you know, it's been 20 years, 20 years. It's hard to imagine it's been 20 years. You know, I was a teenager when this happened. I was, think I was 15 or 16. So I remember it well. Um, and I remember ha it having an impact on me. I mean, but you were there. You were, you were in New York City when this happened. Do you think this has left any kind of like negative impact on you experiencing something so traumatic firsthand as you did? I mean, I think everyone who saw this event has had profound consequences that, you know, really maybe never go away. For me, this moment gave me the opportunity to reflect and I've never looked back. I think for me, being a doctor is, is what I was always meant to do. And healing is the greatest gift. I mean, we have the greatest job in the world, right? To get to make somebody feel better. At the same time, it's probably never been harder to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. So you would say that 9-11, that kind of changed you and inspired you to become a doctor. I mean, I would say in the weeks and months that followed 9-11, I realized I had missed a moment. And that's why, I, you know, I just couldn't go back to making movies, you know, but it wasn't a, an easy guaranteed path. Um, but it was absolutely right for me. And I'm, you know, I, I love getting to take care of kids and, and help families and and heal, it's the greatest, it's the greatest profession in the world. When you, when you made that decision to make that change in your life, did you get a lot of support from family and friends or were family and friends worried about you thinking, what is she doing with this, with this decision? Or how would you characterize that? I mean, I think my parents were unbelievably supportive, but at the same time, like fearful that I would be a disaster again like are you going to be a rock doctor you know I had to go back and take calculus physics organic chemistry it, it, it was a long haul but totally worth it in the end you know it's been 20 years and I'm wondering you know there was so much uncertainty when you made this decision 20 years ago I'm going to change my life how would you describe your life now and that decision that you made 20 years ago it wasn't always easy but I felt very confident that I was making the right decision and following a path that I knew would be meaningful and enrich my life in the most wonderful ways in the long term. But I think by following your passion and believing in yourself, there's just no end to what we can do. You know, follow your dreams, it'll work, you'll make it work. And then obviously having the support of 
family and friends was incredibly essential through through a journey because it's not like two years right you have to go back to college then you go to medical school then you do a residency then I did a fellowship so it wasn't you know a straight shot but in the end um, I'm so grateful that I seized a moment because without it my life would be completely different what's it like for you you know every 9-11 anniversary is it, is it hard? Do you relive those moments? Yeah, I mean, these are moments that surface not just on the annual anniversary of this, they surface in unexpected ways. And the memories feel very near to me. Mm-hmm. But I think we just have to acknowledge and, and never forget you know, never forget the suffering and the devastation and the trauma and, and trust in our leaders and lean on one another, you know, as a, as a community to come together. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's one thing that post 9-11 New York City really demonstrated, just this ability to come together, to support one another, to get, you know, folks through an incredibly devastating time. And I think all of us in New York knew people who lost their lives, knew family members who lost loved ones in this disaster. It was too close to not have some near experience with. And so my experience is just one of millions, right? Not different from any other New Yorker. I just, as a result of it, you know, decided I would take a risk because I wanted to give more. I think the irony is that, right, I had this complete sense of powerlessness that if I had been a physician, I would have had more to give. But in fact, on that day, the physicians felt just as powerless as I did because there was no one to help. You know, there was no one to help. So to wrap things up, we will talk to the man in the governor's mansion as the nation was under attack and show you his perspective. Former Governor Scott McCallum sat down with our own Lee Mills to talk about his role in the aftermath and to share his memories from that day. Governor, where were you when you first realized that our nation was under attack? Uh, That morning I was uh, in the car. Security had picked me up at, at the residence. We were driving in. Um, I believe it was Larry Ambrose, who was uh, Capitol Police Security that morning, said, uh, Governor, we could be at war by this afternoon. Um, I came in. Uh, there was a TV in the governor's office. I turned it on right away to see the second tower getting hit. Um, and uh, it became extremely busy for me that day. Uh, and a lot of people really didn't know what to do. I, mean, I recall security saying to me, we need to get you out and get you to a safe place. I said, but uh, the fact is I need to be seen now and you know, I shouldn't be, shouldn't be back in the residence. So when you turned on the TV and saw the second tower hit, what went through your head? Well, there's just a lot of things occurring. I mean, I was dealing almost immediately with, uh, with the National Guard with uh, state security making decisions of that. And then as well, I've got a lot of state employees. Uh, what do you do? What's happening to our country? I went around and uh, with cameras in tow, uh, just to console people and let them know that, that uh, we would bring things in order. 
but things people never knew about. We had uh, gas gouging, prices going up dramatically, and people were so glued to the TV sets and the radios in that time that I, mean, I suggested that it was un-American and, and we should protest against the, the price gouging. Within minutes, people were out picketing the stations that had raised prices. And we were able, I mean, that was successful. But we're concerned about runs on banks. I mean, all types of things occurring. And it was an unknown. Yeah, I, and the unknown is the word that I remember. I know one of our reporters talked to you and, and you said the unknown was one of the biggest concerns. And in uh, that day, I'm guessing, was part of that unknown, how big is this attack? Are there targets here in Wisconsin? When you think back, you know, what were those kind of, what was that thought process like? Um, I do recall then, I mean, we had to have the blinds down in the office. I didn't want to have people being able to look in from the outside and seeing where I was. Uh, those types of th things occurring, not knowing. Um, the public was going through the same thing. And that was a big part. I not only had to think of my role in the cabinet and the steps and things that were going on, but the reaction of the public and what they ought to be doing and, and help with guidance in that area. How people really pulled together and just really pulled together for America. Uh, that was, that was a, 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 a true blessing that came out of what occurred. And I recall uh, attending uh, and, and saying a few words at the first Packer game afterwards and having the big American flag un unfurled and just the emotion with people. Uh, and actually doing a number of events afterwards. You know, the, the Pledge of the Allegiance meant so much more. Um, the National Anthem meant a lot to people. And, and, and I, I still have the feeling if a crisis hit America again, people would come together and stand up for America. And we do often see it in disasters, where people pull together. You think of the snowstorms, how neighbors will shovel each other's you know, driveways and push, we all get together if somebody's stuck and push them out. And it's just people helping people. Are there any things that people may not know or maybe did not know about the state's response? Yeah, I, I think I've shared some of those. Uh, people know about the, the price gouging, but just the concern with the, uh, with, with uh, runs on banks that were occurring. Um, and again, there's still some, where is this going to go? What is going to happen? Can we fly safely again? Um, those things didn't come out. I do recall, I was trying to get tourism going and, and have people try to get back to a semblance of normal. Uh, Jesse Ventura was the governor of Minnesota the same time I was. So we did a tour of a number of the cities on the Mississippi by boat. Uh, but we had to interrupt it for a, for a briefing from the White House. And, I mean, here you got Jesse, He-Man, you know, both of us were about, you know, very close to tears by the end of that meeting of just what was occurring. And, you know, what is this world coming to? Uh, so a lot of those things did take place. It was a very emotional time. There are a number of people who will watch this who were not alive when 9-11 happened, or maybe more realistically, were not old enough to appreciate the reality of 9-11. What is important for the younger generation to understand? It's, it's interesting because there are defining moments that people remember. 
uh, you know, Pearl Harbor Day. Talk to your grandparents, to your parents. Everybody remembers exactly where they were, what happened in Pearl Harbor Day. Uh, JFK's assassination uh, was when I was in junior high school. And it's, it's one of those things, again, that everybody remembers. This is, again, one of those defining moments for people. Where were they? How did they feel? How important was family? How they reacted to this situation? And then the days immediately after. You think about the last 20 years, do you feel better about our country or worse about our country or where do you fall? You know, there, there are people that always think of the good old times and uh, I've just always been in the belief we need to make now the good times and see the good in what is occurring. Uh, all I can say is things are different and they will be different 20 years from now. Change is part of life and I still truly believe the resilience of America, the ability to change uh, as events change. Again, back today, we're going through some very difficult uh, times of what is occurring. Uh, but democracy has been resilient, and I gotta believe it's, it's truly, you look at the alternative systems, um, it's, it's the way to go. You still have, look at Afghanistan, people are, are risking their lives to get out. They're risking their lives to get out of Afghanistan and to get in to America. Uh, and that, that continues to occur worldwide today. Is there anything else you would want our viewers to know as we all take time over these next few days to reflect on the events of 9-11? You know, uh, there were some real heroes in those uh, 20 years ago. Uh, the immediate reaction, you know, the largest the largest evacuation by sea that has ever occurred in the history of this planet wasn't Dunkirk, is exceeded in New York. And again, back to people who stepped up. Turns out the, the Coast Guard, uh, uh, the person in charge of the area was out that day, it was the second in charge. And people that just had boats showed up and helped steer things. That's, that's what a democracy is made of, of, of people willing to step up uh, take leadership roles, and sometimes not even leadership roles, but, but volunteering to help others. You can see the goodness in people uh, in, in stressful situations, and uh, that's my hope. It, it still exists. It's still there. The trauma of that day lives on for many. This particular time of year can be especially difficult for those who experienced the disaster firsthand. We wanted to make sure you know there are resources available to help during this difficult time. If you or someone you love is having an emotional crisis or thinking of suicide, call 911 or 1-800-273-TALK-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Thanks for listening to our podcast, Making Wisconsin a History of the Badger State. Look out for upcoming episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. We want to give thanks to Rob Verhelst, Dr. Lisa Arkin, and former Governor Scott McCallum for sharing their stories with us. Making Wisconsin a History of the Badger State is hosted by Charlie Shortino and me, Gabriella Rusk. It's produced and edited by Vanessa Reza and Keegan Schlosser. It's overseen by Nick Viviani and Jessica Leshesky.